0: Welcome to the missionary district podcast today. I'm here with Jordan.
1: Hello, everybody. And And, Amos, hello, Amos. Oh, hi Jordan. In case I hadn't (laughs) said hello to you earlier.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And today we're going to be talking about baptism and the Eucharist and specifically why baptism is necessary in order to receive the Eucharist. Uh, This is a question that I get a lot. And one of the reasons I like this question is it seems to come up a lot in the context of Christians who are engaging in the mission of the church. So when you're getting the message of the gospel out there, you're inviting people to church. That's a big part of that. And it's really exciting when your friends and your neighbors come with you. But then maybe it's hard to explain to them why they can't fully participate. It might even seem harsh or unchristlike to invite somebody to church and then, in a way, discriminate against them by telling them that they can't actually fully participate, they can't actually receive communion with us, right? We've just told them all about this God that loves them so completely that he sent his son to die for them, and then we're like, sorry, but you're not good enough to do this with us, or at least it can feel like that. And so I think having a good answer to this question can help serve our mission. It can help people to understand that this uh, prohibition is not like a slight on their character or anything like that, but it's done out of love, and hopefully it serves them as they witness our reverence for the Lord and our obedience to his word.
1: Amos, do you get a lot of questions about this from Christians who aren't baptized yet? If they say, well, I'm a Christian— I just haven't been baptized yet. Can I have the Lord's Supper? I don't know. I don't think I
0: get too many questions. That's a pretty small group. Hmm. I think for the most part, the question comes from people advocating for others, right? Like they've brought somebody to church and they don't know how to explain this to their friend who's not a Christian. So they come and advocate for that person. Mm Mm-hmm where it's not really the you know the non-christian themselves that feels offended or sure. or whatever
1: it's kind of some secondhand offense yeah <laughs> yeah
0: where where there's offense like yeah. often it's just curiosity but sure. where there's offense it's usually second-hand yeah or or at
1: least awkwardness maybe maybe not offense but people feel awkward yeah and don't know what to do cuz they brought their friend and now there's this awkward part and maybe it's uncomfortable enough already bringing someone to church and then everyone's going up at a certain point And now you have to do something and you right. can't just sit in the pew.
0: And, oh, shoot, I forgot to explain this before the service. And yeah, now what I've had that
1: with some of the people <laughs> I've brought who are Christians, but they're not used to doing communion that way. And then I'm like, oh, now this is awkward. And they were already feeling awkward. Yeah. Maybe they weren't, but I felt awkward. <laughs> <laughs> Secondhand awkwardness. Yeah, that's, great. that's it. <laughs> uh, so what are some of the main reasons for doing it this way?
0: I think, uh, probably the first reason that I would say is basically just tradition. Like one of the reasons that we should affirm baptism as a requirement to participate in the Eucharist is because this really is the position that the church has held from the very beginning. And so, yeah, a simple argument from tradition, if you wanted to call it that, and maybe just a word about that before we move on.
1: I think maybe that would be a, another question for a whole other episode is why do we care so much about tradition? Yeah. That's something that people even in Christian circles, but definitely actually, I think that's one of the, the core if you could say tenets of secularism is that we automatically do away with tradition and want to start from scratch. Right. Even though you can't really start from scratch. We think we're starting from scratch Mm -hmm. And we're not following any tradition, but that's a value of secularism: is that we 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 devalue tradition, right. and so even in Christian circles, that's become a thing right. to devalue Christian tradition. But it reminded me of something that I've been reading a lot of C.S. Lewis lately, and he talks about this often. He calls it chronological snobbery, right? Yeah, where yeah, I like that term, yeah, yeah. And he at one point he just says like why do we have this assumption that until yesterday the whole world was wrong and stupid <laughs> but now we figured it out yeah. but just today it's kind of silly but um
0: yeah on uh, on secularism there's this sort of inherent belief in progress right right like we're always progressing which means the most recent thing is the best thing and the truest thing hmm. and so this sort of chronological snobbery is kind of built in to your outlook on history. Mm -hmm. I think, um, in the context of the church and in this conversation, you know, we're, we're not just saying this is the way it's always been done. So therefore we should keep doing it that way. Like we're just mindlessly adopting the traditions of the past or something like that. I think, Particularly when we're discussing theological and doctrinal matters, a charitable interpretation of the past is, is going to hold that at the very least, our forefathers were not all bumbling idiots, right? Like we can safely assume that they had reasons for doing the things that they did and that they found those reasons compelling. So even if we don't know what those reasons are, uh, there, there's something to respecting what's been handed down to us. And so I guess, while I don't think that an argument from tradition is necessarily enough all on its own, what it should certainly do is give us pause, right? For 2,000 years, the practice of the church has been almost entirely uniform on this question. We can't simply dismiss that out of hand because it goes against some of our modern sensibilities. We have to dig in and gain an understanding of not only what was believed and practiced, but why. And in my opinion, if we're not willing to do that work, then, you know, the respectful thing to do would be to defer to what the church has always believed about this.
1: I think that's, that is the most common sense thing to do, I think. But (laughs) um, like you mentioned, our modern sensibilities that often we dismiss things, even in Christian practice, because they don't. They don't mesh with our modern sensibilities. Right. But what I like about what you're doing with this secularism podcast is pointing out that a lot of our modern sensibilities, I guess what we take to be common sense, is actually often more in line with secularism right. than with Christian theology or the Bible and especially like Christian tradition. Um,
0: yeah, I think you're right about this. Um maybe this reluctance in us to defer to tradition too. I think that's that's probably a bigger topic than I realized before we started chatting here, but Mm. it's certainly there in us, in the culture. I was trying to think of like an analogy outside of a church context where that might make sense and just thinking about, like I'm an electrician Mm -hmm. and when I was an apprentice, I had a journeyman who he shouldn't have taught me this because you're not supposed to work on live circuits anyways but he he told me if you're ever working in a hot panel like in a in a panel that's energized um put one hand behind your back and then just work with one hand and my intuitions my modern sensibilities say were like my gut response to that was well that's stupid right like <laughs> first of all you look silly right? <laughs> I want to look cool when I'm doing electrical work. Um, (laughs) But but also it's harder, right? Like it's harder to work with one hand, Uh obviously. I have two good hands. Why would I restrict myself like that? And so I can disagree, right? But if I don't take the time to find out why he thinks I should do it that way, then I can't really meaningfully disagree with him. Right. But if I take the time and ask the question, then I realize it, it might save my life one day. Because if you're holding on, to say the edge of the panel with one hand, and that's grounded, and you hit a live circuit with the other hand, the current is gonna go right through your heart. Hmm. Um, So if you're only working with one hand, the chances of that happening uh, are a lot lower, right? Right. Like, you might still get hurt, but you're probably not going to die. Mm -hmm. And so it was a life-saving thing. And now again, you shouldn't be working on live circuits anyways. (laughs) (laughs) but, But once I've done the work to find out why is this practice there? Then I can meaningfully disagree. Then I can say, you know, well, why don't we take the time to put on protective equipment instead right. of doing that? Yeah. Because safety things in the trades have progressed a little bit since you were uh-huh. first getting into <laughs> <Sure>. it. <And laughs> so you can disagree with tradition. Even.
1: Yeah. Um, but I don't think you can meaningfully disagree until you understand how the tradition got there and why it's there. Yeah. Until you've done
0: the work to find out what exactly
1: you're disagreeing with. Mm
0: -hmm. Does that make sense? Totally. And I think even with the church, it can be the same way. Like I, I like questions. I like disagreement. And when we look at the history of the church, we find, you know, doctrinal development usually comes out of conflict because, We didn't really have a reason to articulate the doctrine of the Trinity until Arianism came along. Mm -hmm. And then the conflict actually birthed something really beautiful and essential to our faith. And so I think questioning things is really important. And I I like good dialogue like that. I just think we can't just dismiss things out of hand because our intuitions go one direction without taking the time to do the work and, and get in there and figure out what exactly is going on.
1: Yeah. Okay. So tradition would be one, the tradition of the church going back 2000 years has generally almost unanimously seen it this way. So that's a pretty, I think that's a pretty good starting point. Right. <laughs> you've, like you said, you've got to figure out why, if you're going to try and undo it, you should probably figure out why it was there in the first place. Yeah. Um, so what are some of the other reasons why the tradition would have done it this way? Or why we still do it this way?
0: Yeah, I think probably the next category that I would say has to do with holiness. Like the Eucharist is a holy meal for holy people. And we see this teaching explicitly expressed in the Didache, which is an early Christian document uh, dated to sometime late in the first century. Uh, So potentially even written before some parts of the New Testament. And actually was almost considered part of the canon of scripture at some points. And the Didache says this Let no one eat or drink of your Eucharist unless they have been baptized into the name of the Lord. For concerning this also, the Lord has said, Give not that which is holy to the dogs. And so, first of all, to go back to our first point, this shows that holding baptism to be a prerequisite to participation in the Eucharist has unquestionably been the position of the church since the very beginning. But second, the justification for this position is taken to be the words of our savior himself from Matthew chapter seven. So Matthew seven, verse six. So this would be the first explicitly biblical argument for the practice. And the full verse there reads, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, Jesus' words might sound a little bit harsh there, especially in the way that the Didache is applying them to people, um, but it is consistent with the biblical witness. We, we regularly see in the scriptures that holy things must be treated in a particular way. So even uh, when we think of the Levitical priests, when they pronounced God's blessing on something, they could no longer treat that thing as though it was ordinary, Right? You can look to um, Leviticus 22 or Exodus 30 if you want more examples on that kind of stuff. But when something has been blessed by God, it's been set apart for him, it's been sanctified, it's been made holy, it must be treated as such. It can't be treated in the same way that we treated it before it was blessed. And the Eucharist is a blessed meal. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? It's it's the cup of blessing. The Eucharist is a blessed meal, it's a holy meal, and therefore we must not treat it as though it is ordinary or as though anyone may partake.
1: Can I just pause you there and connect some dots? Because I see today's topic especially is connecting a lot to the stuff you're talking about in the other episodes on secularism with Tyler. yeah. Because you talked about how the Eucharist is a holy meal for holy people. Right. And then there's this quote from first um, Corinthians 10 about a cup of blessing that is a participation in the blood of Christ. And I think to understand what it means for something to be holy or to think about this as a participation in something, what does that really mean? Because if the, I guess to, to say if the world is flat, like secularism trains us to see the world, then how could a cup of anything be a participation? How could a cup of wine be a participation in Christ's blood? If there's nothing To the world, but natural, physical matter. Right. And the world is flat, and there's no supernatural dimension, and there's no, maybe, I don't know, spiritual realm would be the right way to put it. Sure. Then how is wine participation in Christ's blood? Right. Or if you think about the word holy, what does it mean for something to be holy if the Eucharist is holy or we are holy people? I think that's just come to mean you're merely just in a category you're set apart. Like you hear about that, which is true. That's what something means to be holy is to be set apart. But within the sacramental worldview, there's this extra dimension to something being holy. Like it's different. Yeah. Right. And that's what it means to be set apart. There's something different about it. Mm -hmm. It's, I guess it's not just a cup of wine. It's not just bread. You're not just a person you're a holy person.
2: Yeah.
1: And there's part of that secularism philosophy really is part of it is called nominalism, which means something is just, we just give it a name. So it's just a cup because we call it a cup. We decide what things are. They aren't, there is no actual real essence to a thing. And so I guess when it comes to communion, that can influence our view of it, well, it's just wine and bread. It's not yeah. actually anything more than that.
0: Yeah. Just a symbol.
1: It's just a symbol. Yeah. Right. But if it's just that, then we can't participate in anything through it. But the New Testament talks about communion as a participation in something. Mm-hmm. So the bread and wine isn't just bread and wine, it's also something else. Right. Which if we have allowed secularism to creep in. If we've, dr- if we've drank the groundwater of secularism, I've been listening to the other episodes. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> um, then we will see communion pretty flat. Right. And we will miss the extra dimension to it, that it is something more, that it is participation in something more. Yeah. That that's what it means for it to be holy or for us to be holy, that there's something more going on than merely... God has set you apart for I don't know, something great. Or like yeah. what does it mean to be sure. set apart? What does it mean <laughs> to be holy? Maybe, I guess
0: let's uh let's give another uh synonym for holiness and, and call it um belonging. Okay. In the sense of belonging to God. Ah. So if, if something is has been blessed, if it has been made holy, if it has been set apart, in a sense it belongs to God. It's been and not just that he owns it, but in some sense it has been incorporated into his being hmm. such that it reflects his goodness and character to creation and allows you to commune with him through this thing that has been set apart to him.
1: That's really good. Yeah. So holy means to be set apart. That's true. But set apart unto what? Right. Set apart into God.
0: Into God.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, sorry, that was a very long rabbit trail in the middle of uh, a very good point you're making about um, about holiness. But I guess what you were saying was that communion is a holy thing in the scriptures. Jesus in scripture says, "Do not give what is holy to dogs." He also says, "Don't cast your pearls before swine." Right. But maybe uh, one way that people might look at this is now we're talking about baptism as like a gate that's blocking us from the blessings of God and Eucharist.
0: Yeah. I I really think that the interpretation that we bring to this is really important. Like if we're just thinking it as something that's blocking us from the blessings of God or from the presence of God, then we're probably going to be really agitated about it and have a really hard time understanding why this prohibition is there. Alternatively, We might think of it more like uh, the intentions of my journeyman that I mentioned earlier, more like uh, a protective thing, like a guardrail, some protective measure um, to ensure that we are properly honoring the presence of the Lord in the bread and the wine. And to protect the unbeliever, right, like bringing unholy people into the presence of a holy God is not a good idea. And I think this is really the essence of what Jesus is saying. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not give holy things to unholy people. Or or to put that another way, only those who have been made holy through union with Christ can enter the presence of a holy God or commune with him. And it is in the waters of baptism where we are made holy, where that happens. In baptism, we are eternally united to Christ. We Receive his righteousness. We are forgiven and cleansed of our sin. We're made holy. We are made to belong to God. And in a parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 22, uh, it says something very similar. It says that those who would partake of the wedding feast were required to wear wedding garments. Like the people that aren't wearing wedding garments are thrown out. And our wedding garments are our baptismal robes. And so the wedding garments, our baptismal robes of purity, are what qualify us to enter the wedding feast, to receive the Lord's Supper. And so there's two passages already in the New Testament that say much the same thing. This is a holy meal that is reserved for those who have been made holy.
1: So then I guess if up until now you've been seeing this idea of you have to be baptized before having communion, as like, well, why would we put that blockage in someone's way? Yeah. Um. Really, I mean, you just, you flip that around real quick and go, well, baptism isn't the blockage. It's actually the doorway yeah. that you get to this. Right. And the door to baptism is not really closed. Yeah. Like, it's open. And if, you, if you're wanting communion, why would you not want baptism? Right. Because it's, how did you put it in... Another way to put holiness is belonging. Belonging, Yeah. Yeah. So the water and baptism belongs to God. The right. bread and the wine and Eucharist belong to God. And by partaking in those things, that's how you belong to God. Right. So if that's the case for both baptism and Eucharist, why would you, why would you go, well, I don't want to get baptized. I just want Eucharist. Yeah. <laughs> it seems a little silly at that point, I think. Um, but what are some of the other like biblical examples?
0: Yeah, I would say, um, Another biblical approach would be to say that the Eucharist is a covenantal meal and baptism is the means by which one enters the covenant. And this is the answer I give people when I need to give like a 30 second answer or something because it seems to be the easiest to intuitively understand. Like the Eucharist is a covenantal meal and you obviously can't eat a covenantal meal if you're not in the covenant, right? Like that that makes sense to people. If buying a house was sacramental, Then baptism would be like the down payment and the initial signing of the paperwork. And the Eucharist would be like your monthly mortgage payments or something. Now, that's a terrible analogy because who wants to make monthly mortgage payments? (laughs) Where's the life in that? (laughs) But I think at least it gets the idea across that you can't really make a monthly mortgage payment without signing a contract, or at least that would be foolish. The two are connected and there is a proper order in how they are administered. Baptism and the Eucharist are, are similarly connected. They are the sacraments of our salvation, the, the blood and water which flow from the side of Christ. And baptism is the means by which we enter into this covenant relationship with God and receive our forgiveness and our new life in Christ. And the Eucharist is a meal of covenant renewal. And in it, we meet with the Lord and we are united to him, receiving his very body and blood in the elements that we consume. I think probably a better analogy is found in marriage. Marriage is sacramental, and there are two rites or sacramental acts that are associated with marriage. The actual uh, wedding ceremony is an unrepeatable event through which you enter into a lifelong covenant with your spouse before God. You make vows of promise, and you invite the participation and accountability of your community, so it's a very public thing. And then the second sacramental act is very private, and it is a repeatable event through which that covenantal commitment to your spouse is renewed and strengthened, and that is, of course, sexual intimacy. And there are reasons that we we believe sexual intimacy is properly confined to marriage. It's meant to be private. It's meant to be exclusive, and removing sex from the context of marriage effectively devalues marriage and objectify sex the meaning and value of both becomes very distorted and in a similar way baptism is a one-time unrepeatable event through which you enter into an eternal covenant with God in the water you are crucified with Christ all of your sin and shame is put to death and then you are raised again into newness of life and filled with the Holy Spirit and incorporated into the body of Christ. And you make vows of promise. You say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I renounce the devil and all his works and so on. And and it's a public event. You invite the participation and the accountability of the community as they witness your conversion. But then there's, there's a second sacrament of salvation. And this one is a repeatable event through which that same covenantal commitment that was made in baptism is renewed and strengthened. And of course, that is Holy Communion. But you can't renew a covenant that you haven't made. And so the Eucharist is private or exclusive. It is exclusive to those of the covenant community. It it is properly celebrated within the confines of the covenant that was ratified in baptism. And if we remove it from that context— we distort the meaning and the value of both baptism and the Eucharist, and we objectify them.
1: So what we're saying then about baptism before Eucharist is saying that these things are not religious rites, not merely religious rites. They're about relationship right. with God. Not in, They're not just objective things that we do or objects, but they're yeah part of a relationship with a God who's a person and has given instruction about these things right and has an opinion about them,
2: yeah
0: and it's a very intimate thing too, like right I mean the analogy to marriage, the renewing and strengthening of of a covenant bond uh is more than just a piece of bread mm-hmm yeah
1: do you have other scriptural examples,
0: yeah, I think to sort of go down that same line of thinking, we have another example of this in the administration of the Passover meal. So, I mean, we won't take the time to dig into this, but there is certainly a correlation between the Passover and the Eucharist, just as there is between circumcision and baptism. And we can see that the principles regarding the administration of these rites are consistent. In both cases, there is a rite through which one enters into the covenant community, circumcision in the Old Covenant and baptism in the New, and there is a rite which is exclusive to the covenant community and through which the covenant relationship is confirmed and celebrated, and that is the Passover meal in the Old Covenant and the Eucharist in the New. And so the New Testament never explicitly says you must be baptized in order to receive the Eucharist. Uh, but the, the Old Testament does explicitly say that you must be circumcised in order to eat the Passover meal. So in, in Exodus chapter 12, you can read about that, about the administration of the Passover meal. And it does. It explicitly says there's no partaking of the Passover meal without being circumcised. And so when, when we when we say that there's no partaking of the Eucharist without being baptized, we're just applying the same biblical principles that have always guided us in these matters. And so I think the scriptures and the tradition really are consistent on this point. The meal of the covenant is reserved for those who have entered into the covenant.
1: So I'm noticing something developing here, which is in Anglican theology, there are, well, it depends which Anglicans you talk to, but there's like three (laughs) or four pillars that they accept as, if something's true theologically, you first it's first got to be from scripture right or or made the case with scripture scripture is primary yeah but then tradition is secondary yeah it comes next and often you read scripture through the lens of tradition and some people might not like that idea but the reality is you're reading scripture through the lens of some tradition right one whether you know it or not <laughs> and as i think we're pointing out in the secularism podcast is um Often we're reading it through secularist tradition without knowing it. But so there's scripture, there's tradition, and then there's reason, which isn't like, um, we can just come up with reasons or whatever good <laughs> reasons there are that we can list. Um, but it's the idea that it, it, uh, reason is in how you are able to kind of put together an argument from scripture and tradition. Right. So just acknowledging that we are, we're interpreters, of scripture and tradition. And so we're reasoning these things. Yeah. But then the fourth thing, which is sometimes emphasized, sometimes less so is experience. There's, there's some role for experience in how we do theology. Right. But this is always, at least in Anglican theology, always the last and least valuable of the four things. So far you've got, you've presented the tradition, you've presented, um, a lot of the scripture yeah. and you've kind of made your reasonable case from those two things. Sure. I think it's dawning on me as we're going through it, that maybe the reasons why people don't like the idea of baptism before Eucharist or, or just feel awkward about it or unsure about it or, or don't want to be hardline with it. Yeah maybe more so come from that experience bit. Like we're saying, it's just like the experience of you bring a new person to church and then it's awkward telling them, thanks for coming to church, but you can't participate in this part. Right. Or
0: that could be part of it, I think. And, um, I think also that would help explain why often the questions are coming secondhand. mm -hmm. Like they're not necessarily coming from the non-Christian who's visiting in a
1: church. Right.
0: But from the friend that brings them. Yeah. Um, as sort of a second hand, I'm going to stand up and advocate for yeah. this because I feel my experience is awkward about this and I don't like that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I guess maybe that's it is, is my experience of this is it would be easier if I didn't have to tell my non-Christian friend, they can't participate in communion yet because right. they're not baptized or not even a Christian.
0: Yeah. Well, especially I mean, in Canada, we're very conflict adverse, yeah, like so anything that feels remotely like conflict, yeah, we don't we don't want to do that except yeah. with our pastors, apparently <laughs> <laughs> um i I think too, though, not necessarily just experientially, but also some of the opposition to requiring baptism for the Eucharist uh, comes from a really genuine place of, you know, God is loving. And so this doesn't feel loving, mm. so why are we doing this? Yeah,
1: right. yeah, my experience of of church and of, so my experience of church and community and the gospel and God's love is welcoming and inviting and gracious and he just continually gives to me and, and God has an open door right. for me. Yeah. As a Christian. And
0: his grace is unending. Like
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so in my experience of the gospel, if that's how I'm viewing this situation, then I would want to mirror that graciousness. And it looks like grace in this case would argue for allowing anyone to come and partake of the table.
0: Yeah. Um so let's just um play devil's advocate for a minute, I guess. Mm -hmm. and try to you know give the other side a fair shake um, and to really understand i guess not necessarily just what's being said but also maybe why it's being said you know what are the the motivations that are underneath it i think um you know as i was preparing for this episode it seemed to me that um, arguments for giving communion without requiring baptism can broadly fall into one of three categories and I think in every case when when I'm looking charitably at these positions there are good godly motivations at the bottom and so the first category is sort of what we've been touching on here already and I think it's it's built on the desire to model the grace and the love and the acceptance of Jesus and so we see in the scriptures that Jesus ate with tax collectors and with sinners. In John chapter 4, he spends a considerable amount of time with a Samaritan woman who appears to be an adulterer. His whole mission is to save us, humanity, from our sins, to offer forgiveness, to extend love and grace to us, to invite us into fellowship with God. Jesus doesn't hold people at bay and insist on preconditions in order for people to enter his presence. In fact, it's the opposite. He actively removes obstacles to his presence. In Matthew chapter 19, he says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. Let them come. He makes himself accessible to all. And, and later on in Matthew chapter 27, we read about the veil in the temple being supernaturally torn in two as Jesus gives up his spirit on the cross. And this is widely and rightly understood as removing a barrier to the presence of God. The temple veil was a literal obstacle to the most holy place. And Jesus just destroys it. And so if the Eucharist is where we encounter the presence of Jesus, then it would seem like having any preconditions at all to approaching Christ at the table, even baptism, would be to artificially create some kind of obstacle to God's presence. And so if we want to model the grace and the love and the acceptance of Jesus, then we must, as he did, eat with the tax collectors and the sinners. We must be willing to eat with the unbaptized at the table of the Lord. So I hope I, I'm representing that, uh, fairly.
1: Yeah. I think the, and absolutely when the motivation is to be gracious and extend the grace of God's love to our neighbors, like that's, that's an excellent motivation. Yeah. But perhaps, yeah, is, is there another way to extend that grace to them? Because I think as, as maybe I said earlier, there's, um, or or you said I actually don't remember if it was you or me <laughs> we were talking about baptism being a barrier or an obstacle and going it's not I mean it in one sense it is it's it has to happen before communion yeah um but it's not a barrier keeping people from communion or yeah. keeping people from god it's like the doorway into oneness it's an invitation it is yeah it's an invitation it's not yeah. It's not a a slam door in the face. It's the welcome mat or the threshold you have to cross to come in. Maybe if, if I'm spitballing an analogy here, (laughs) if we see God as the father of this household and he's cooking a meal for the members of his family and there's a hungry person outside, you know, we think, well, they, they need the food too. Right. But you're not gonna throw it outside at them. <laughs> you're gonna welcome them into the right. house yeah, and yeah. into the family. Yeah. I don't know. That was a bit of a stretch, but <laughs> I think I think there's some They have
0: to walk through the doorway it, to get
1: yeah, the family. I guess what I'm yeah. saying is it's not bap in that case, baptism is not ungracious to ask people to get baptized. Right. Because we're asking people to join the family and become part of and, and welcome them into not only Christ's body, but into Christ. Yeah, That's the most gracious thing to do.
0: It is, yeah. And I, I love that people are motivated by grace and by love. And we can absolutely agree that the ministry of Jesus was and is characterized by these things, right? He's very, very welcoming to the people in need all around him. At the same time, I think we should also be able to recognize that he chose 12 to be his disciples, right? That was an exclusive group. And then he says in John 14, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Salvation itself is exclusive to those who believe in Jesus. So there are some elements of the Christian faith modeled on the life of Christ that support this idea of exclusivity. There are some things that are that are just exclusive to the covenant community And that's okay, and we can't ignore that just because we don't like it or because it makes us feel awkward. But I think more than that, what you're hitting on here is what I would want to say as well, and that is that that baptism is not an obstacle to God's presence. Baptism is a means of grace. It's, It's a sacrament that unites us to the person of Jesus Christ. And so we need to be really careful that we don't just see it as something that we have to do in order... receive the eucharist as if it's just some box to check off on the way to bigger and better things or something like that and if there are people in your churches that want to receive the eucharist but aren't baptized what a fantastic opportunity to tell them about the glories of baptism and to lead them into receiving the grace of our lord in the waters baptism isn't a tool that we sort of wield to keep people away it's a means of receiving the grace of jesus and being brought into fellowship with him. And so, yeah, if you're motivated by grace, then I think that would be the greater thing is to lead people into baptism so that they can rightly receive the Eucharist.
1: For the record, I think uh, we could do a whole nother episode and should on the glories of baptism.
0: Indeed. yeah,
1: (laughs) We would put that on the list. But what are other, is there another motivation, like a good motivation or reason you see for wanting to put aside this tradition of baptism before Eucharist?
0: Yeah, I think, I think I see three. So the second one I would say is rooted in humility before God. And so just to sort of steel man that side for a minute, people giving this argument would say, you know, this is the Lord's table, not mine. And so who am I to judge or guard the Lord's table? Christ alone is the judge. At the institution of the Eucharist at the Last Supper, Judas Iscariot is there, and he receives the Passover meal along with the rest of the disciples. And Jesus did not stop him. And so if the Lord himself can offer the chalice even to Judas, then who are we to withhold the chalice from anyone else? And I really do see humility in that. And I think this position is— careful not to overstep the boundaries of authority. It sees Christ as actively leading the church and desires to leave all judgment in his hands. And so if somebody feels compelled to approach the table, we should let them do that. And we should trust that the Lord will make himself known to them in the breaking of the bread. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think it's maybe also something to remember that it's not that these people can't be present at the meal. Like they're still there in the service and participating in all other aspects of the service. And we trust that Christ will meet them in all those aspects and is meeting them while communion is taking place. And hopefully they're coming forward as well to, to receive a blessing. Right. Um, it's just that they're not partaking in the, the elements. Yeah. Yeah so we're not again we're not restricting them from receiving of Christ but just through this one means right and yeah i guess you you mentioned like if in this view we're saying Christ alone is the judge yeah and so we should be humbled to let him decide what ought to happen yeah but again as you've pointed out in the first half of this podcast Christ is the judge and he has shown us right. <laughs> uh how this should happen i suppose <laughs> at least your argument seems That's fair i think
2: yeah.
0: yeah and again i think the intentions are really good and so i i do want to honor that and even learn from it um i think the approach here really is grounded in humility before god and that is a good thing and something to be celebrated Um, We should be careful not to overstep our boundaries of authority, but at the same time, as as you point out, refusing to step into the authority that the Lord has given you, that's not a good thing either. And priests and bishops are ordained to word and sacrament. They are given the task of both administering and safeguarding the message of the gospel and the means of grace, the sacraments. And this is the God-given role of a priest in Christ's church. And I think distributing the Eucharist to the unbaptized is poor stewardship. It, It is dishonoring to the holy presence of Jesus, to his precious body and blood that has been set apart for the spiritual nourishment of the faithful. And Jesus did give the cup to Judas. And I think we should wrestle with that, but we should also acknowledge that Judas was a part of the covenant community and to withhold the chalice in that case would be to withhold it for the sake of a future sin, right? The fact that that Judas was there at the Last Supper is shocking to us mostly because we know the end of the story. But when Judas received the chalice, he hadn't betrayed Jesus yet. And so, yes, we need to walk humbly before the Lord and ensure that our worship and our doctrine and our practice elevate Christ as our sovereign king and the head of his church. Um, but part of that is being obedient to him. And so, We also need to acknowledge and take seriously the weight of Scripture on this matter and I think permit our priests to function in the calling that they have received with their ordination.
1: And I think maybe there, what I want to ask, but I know it it will have to be a whole nother episode, is (laughs) why (laughs) just priests um, or ordained people doing these certain tasks? But I guess I just raised that question to say, if you're listening to this and that question goes through your head. I maybe stay tuned, and hopefully we'll get around to it. And <laughs> I knew that
0: question would come up, but yeah, I, yeah.
1: Well, I think I think in in this in in answering this question, that's a part of the reason why. Yeah, and so I think we have to get there eventually, but it's, I know that it's too long for today. So,
0: okay. So there's one more um, category that I wanted to talk about, and. You know, this is, again, to sort of steel man the positions against requiring baptism in order to receive the Eucharist. And and this would be for the sake of mission. It's a dominant theme through Scripture that God's people extend the blessings that they receive to the nations around them. And so I think this line of thinking really appeals to my appreciation for the sacramental nature of the Eucharist. If our mission is to lead people to Jesus— and Holy Communion is what we say it is, an encounter with the true body and blood of Jesus Christ, then wouldn't allowing or even encouraging non-Christians to partake of the Eucharist be a good thing, right? Receiving the Eucharist is a big part of our own sanctification. It's one of the things, maybe the most important thing, that transforms us into being more like Christ. We, we are what we eat. And so if our goal is to see the nation's encounter the presence of Jesus and to be transformed by his presence, then what better way than to lead them to the Lord's table, to Christ himself? Can we not say to our neighbors, as the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Come to his table and experience his goodness. And again, I think here the desires are good. The motivations are good, right? The desire to see the nations encounter the presence of Jesus and to be transformed by his presence That's a really good desire, but to bring the unbaptized to the Lord's table is irresponsible. And I won't belabor this point because I've already made it, but you must be holy to enter the presence of a holy God. And we're made holy through our union with Christ in baptism. And so to allow the unbaptized access to the table doesn't properly honor the presence of the Lord or show due care for our friends and neighbors. And... Removing the Eucharist from its proper context devalues the Eucharist and baptism. It distorts our understanding of the sacraments of salvation and objectifies them. It treats them um, in a very utilitarian, almost a mechanical way, and sees them as ends in themselves that we're entitled to, rather than means of grace that we receive in faith. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, that's really good. I think the other thing that comes to mind there is, if we see them as mechanical, we're like, these are just, uh, they're almost magical objects. Right. So if we, I, I think this was actually a, a problem in the middle ages was that people misunderstood sacraments in this way and saw them as magical objects. So I heard that they would, they would take the bread home with them to give to their sick pig or livestock that were dying. Cause I thought it was just this magical thing that would bring them back to life, Right. which misunderstands the purpose and reason for it but that's kind of the thing here is like if this is really that powerful and this is really more than just bread and in, in a, a gateway to life in Christ why wouldn't we give it as mission to people yeah why wouldn't we feed it to everyone but scripture actually is pretty clear on this point that it at least in this case with these sacraments the experience of the presence of Jesus in the bread and wine will be dangerous for those people. Right. Who have not received baptism. And that's what's the passage where it talks about eating and drinking judgment on?
0: Yeah, 1 Corinthians 11, mm, right. Paul warns about that. So it could be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Also, proper reception of the sacraments um, requires faith. Right. And so there's also some thinking through the tradition of the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of conversation about that. Like, what is the role of faith? And Mm -hmm. what happens to the elements, say, when they are Mm -hmm. consumed in Mm -hmm. an unworthy manner or without faith? What happens when a pig Mm -hmm. consumes the consecrated bread? Yeah. Are they consuming Jesus? Yeah. Um, At
1: best, nothing happens to them. At worst, it will be dangerous.
0: Right. Yeah. And I mean, it's a a really interesting thing to get into Mm -hmm. and to see how this question has been approached as it relates to proper reception of the faithful to unworthy reception, so somebody that receives while they are in a state of schism or unrepentant sin, um, and then how it relates to ignorant reception, so somebody that receives without knowing that they weren't supposed to, or uh, even if it's given to an animal or something like that. Uh, Anyway, so I know that it's a little bit more difficult to kind of go through some of the counter arguments and objections and really try to flesh them out a little bit and understand them as we respond to them. I think that's important. So, yeah, I know this is a bit of a longer episode because of that. Um, (laughs) But I hope also that it helps people to understand and appreciate some other viewpoints, right? Like there are good things in the opposing viewpoints that we can uh, learn from and that we can appreciate. Like the motivations are really good. Generally, like like people are are generally trying to do the right thing and genuinely trying to follow the Lord. And they maybe haven't taken the time to dig into the tradition and understand why, these precautions are there or these practices are there, but yeah, they're trying to do a good thing.
1: So it's really great for us to be able to have this conversation, to start exploring and explaining, explaining maybe our side of it and exploring the, re- the reasons other people might have. Yeah. Um, but let's bring it back to what if we bring someone to church and they're not a Christian and either we remember before service to explain this to them or it's communion time and we go, Oh rats, I've got 15 seconds to lean over and whisper yeah. <laughs> what, <laughs> why they can't or what they should do. I mean, how do we put it charitably in a way? How do we still be gracious and humble? Yeah. Um, cause those are those good points, those good motivations from some of the other views. How do we still be gracious and humble in what we say and full of love but also explain it really well in like 30 seconds or something. Right. Like how would you recommend doing that?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I think if you've forgotten to have this conversation prior to like, you know, the usher is standing at the edge of your pew and Uh guiding you to the front. I think at that point, just tell your friend, cross your arms over your chest.
1: (laughs) If you have questions, I'll explain this. And we can have
0: a a fuller conversation later. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
0: Otherwise, if you have a little bit more time, mm-hmm. I think explaining that this is a really special and sacred thing for us as Christians—that mm-hmm. that it's a gift that God has given to us—and um, it requires preparation, mm-hmm. um, and it requires being in a formal relationship with God mm-hmm. um, in order to properly partake of it, mm-hmm. and that we can't just we can't just circumvent that process, mm-hmm. and then. Maybe talking about baptism, like in, instead of keeping the the focus of attention on the Eucharist, which is something that they can't have, let's talk about something they can have. Yeah. Right? Like let's get into the doorway into the family of God. Like, do you want to be united to God in Christ in the waters mm-hmm. of baptism? Yeah. Um, that would you be could a wonderful say, conversation to have.
1: Yeah. You could say that's what this is. That's what communion is. This is part of our um, being united to to Christ and, uh, through communion, yeah. if you want that though, the, I'm so glad you want it. But the way, the first thing is being united to Christ through baptism right. and maybe saying something like what we're about to do in communion, this is how we as Christians, um, this is a part of our ongoing relationship with God, our, our ongoing and regular relationship This isn't the start of it. Right. Like this is in the middle of it. Yeah. (laughs) If you, if, so this wouldn't be the place for you to jump in. Yeah. You know, for the first time.
0: Yeah. This is the deep end of the pool. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah.
1: That might be a good way. Or you could say like, you know, if you, if you really love a TV series and you're recommending it to a friend, you're not going to start them off in episode six, right? You're going to be like, well, let's go back to episode one. Yeah. Um, you need some context. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it won't make sense. You need, well, even what you said is there's, there's preparation Yeah, for communion, preparing our hearts. And, and part of that is we have prepared ourselves for communion, not just with the liturgy and, and confession and reflection and stuff, but we've prepared ourselves through baptism.
0: Right. Yeah. And I think to, to point out that what's happening here at the table, you know, began in baptism or is a, a reaffirming of what happened in baptism. Like Hmm. you can draw those connections and then have a, a deeper, more meaningful conversation about baptism. Mm -hmm. And I think I said before, sort of my 32nd answer is, Um, The Eucharist is a covenantal meal and Mm. baptism is the means by which someone enters into the covenant. Um, I like your uh, language about relationship better, I think, um, Mm. because covenant is kind of a tricky word for sure people, new people. yeah. Um, So maybe, you know, this is a family meal and you enter into the family, you become part of the family Mm -hmm. by being baptized. And Mm -hmm. so let's talk about baptism and what that means.
1: Yeah, that sounds good.
0: That's great. I know this is a question that a lot of people have. And so I hope that this answered some of those questions and also maybe helped people to think about it in different ways from different perspectives. And thanks for talking with me today, Jordan, about this.
1: You're very welcome. My pleasure.
0: And uh, as always, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at missionarydistrict at com. Thanks, everybody.